We're continuing our sermon series today on, on fear. Uh, and I'm sure you've all heard the term people pleaser, right? Somebody that uh, wants to always do right and, and help people. Uh, a, a, a people pleaser is the type of person that really has a hard time saying no. So if you ask them to do something, if they, you need, you know, like if they have to give you permission or you need them to help, they're the type of people that are always going to say yes, right? Um, and a lot of times they'll say yes, even at the expense of their own time, their own resources, their own money. And, and you know, the moment they say yes, people pleaser will often have that moment of like regret and grief, like, oh, why did I just say yes, right? But that's, that's who, who people pleasing are. And, and it's, they're, it's hard because for them, it's, it's hard to confront and challenge people because they wanna love on people. Uh, it's difficult for them that a lot of times in confrontation, they will usually unnecessarily accept blame and offer apologies for things that they don't have to do or, or things that they were not responsible for. Uh, and again, it's this desire because they want to be nice and they want to be kind and loving and they want to be a servant to people. Uh, and so they're, they're, always, they're always saying yes. And at, at a deeper level, one of the things we understand sometimes about people pleasers is they may lack the self-confidence that their worth or their value comes from other people. And so when they have to tell people no, they, they fear that approval won't come from the people who they are getting that confidence or that approval from. Uh, sometimes it's just that fear of confrontation that they don't want to create a situation or a problem that they have to address. And that can be very difficult and stressful for them. And so it's easier to just say yes or not address the actual situation that goes on. But you can usually tell a, a people pleaser, you know why? Because they're usually the first one to come out and say, I'm a people pleaser, right? That, that's oftentimes how you know, because they want to please you. They, they want you to know who they are and, 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 and what's, what's happening in their lives. And so they'll, they'll often offer this up. Usually it makes them feel good because they're, they're, they're dealing with that stress of like, I know I shouldn't be a people pleaser, but I am. And so by telling you that, I feel a little bit better that I know I have to overcome that, but I'm struggling to overcome it. Um, and as Christians, again, don't we preach kindness and grace and love and mercy and service, right? This idea that we should be saying yes to people should seem like a very normal part of the Christian walk, right? Well, you know, the, the reality is that's the tension, that if we can't ever say no to people, right, there are some serious consequences that can happen if we, if we can't ever say no. And it's really hard because a lot of times the people that we have to say no to are the people that we love the most. The people who we truly, truly care about and would do anything for, and that can be really difficult. And it puts a lot of strain on us because we're sitting there saying, I know I shouldn't say yes. I know I shouldn't give permission. I shouldn't give my approval. But if I do, I know the reality of what's going to happen. And that's a really difficult place to be in. And that's the tension that we live with. So we started the sermon series last week talking about fear. And as I said, we're going to spend the first couple of weeks talking about what we shouldn't fear. And then we'll spend the last two weeks talking about what should be feared in a healthy sense of that. And last week, we just spoke in a very general sense about how the disciples, again, as Christ left, 
and, and was buried in the tomb. They were, they were fearful of what might happen. Again, they put all of their hope and stock that this Jesus was the Messiah, and they felt severely let down. Uh, and so they were afraid. And then Jesus resurrects. He comes back. And the second time he leaves, it's a completely different story. Because again, when we truly understand the hope in, in our Savior of Jesus Christ, it causes us not to fear, but to be able to worship and experience that joy and peace. So today we're going to talk about the fear of man, right? Don't we often fear when people approach us, right, and we're confronted with problems and challenges? And, and how does God address that? And how do we overcome that sense of fear? So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 32. Now, just to give you a little backdrop of the book of Exodus from 1 to 32. Again, remember, God has come to Abraham and said, you know, I'm going to give you my people and you're going to be the father of many nations. And out of your line is going to come the Savior. Uh, and so the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, uh, they, they grow in numbers and then there's a famine. And so they have to go down to Egypt and they head down there. And then as they continue to, to populate and get bigger and bigger, Pharaoh becomes nervous and he enslaves them. And so they, they have these many years of harsh enslavement and they cry out to God and God hears their cries and raises up Moses. And he says, Moses, you're going to lead my people back into the promised land. Well, Moses is a little timid and he's like, God, I'm not really the one to be doing this. I don't have good speaking skills. So he says, fine, I'll give you Aaron. I'll give you your brother Aaron. He can be the mouthpiece. But, but you're going to kind of be the driving force behind this. And so he goes to Pharaoh, and again, he, he says, you know, you're going to let my people go. Pharaoh refuses, and so we have the ten plagues that happen. And finally, at the end of ten plagues, Pharaoh gets it and says, go, take your people, be gone. Well, as the, the people are heading off back to the promised land, again, Pharaoh has this change of heart. He gets his army. He begins to chase them. We see the miracle of the Red Sea. God parts it. The people walk through the dry ground. And then as Pharaoh's army comes, God allows the waters to come back, right, and destroy the Egyptian army. And God's people are now safe. And so now they're beginning the process of wandering through the desert, right? And God is providing for them with, with water and food and protection and taking care of them as they're going on through this journey. Well, we finally get to Exodus chapter 19, where God calls to Moses. He calls him up to Mount Sinai uh, and he says to him, he says, listen, prepare your people for obedience. I'm going to call you up to this mountain and I'm going to tell you what it is that I want. And so then we get to Exodus 20, where we have the Ten Commandments. And really all of Exodus 20 through Exodus 31 is those commands that God is giving to Moses and talking about the tabernacle, this place where God is going to dwell. And he says, these are all the laws and information that you're going to take back to your people about what it means to be obedient to me and to follow me. Okay, And so that's where we're at from Exodus 19 up to 31. Moses is having a conversation with God. Okay, So now we come to Exodus 32 and we're going to realize, well, what's everybody else been doing while Moses is on top of the mountain? Okay, so if you have your Bibles, again, you can open, if you're not there, you have Exodus, 30, Exodus 32. And let me read verse 1 here for you. It says, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Okay, So the people are wondering, hey, it, it's been a while, Aaron, what's going on? 
what's happening here. And they come to Aaron and they gather around him. And that word gathered actually conveys the idea of hostility. So you have to understand, it's not like they sat down and had a very like cordial conversation with, with Aaron. There's this pressure being put on Aaron that they're like, hey, we want a God. Where's our gods, Aaron? We don't know what happened to Moses. We want you to do something about this. And so Aaron is feeling this pressure and this hostility before him. Okay? And, and notice that part too. It says, as for this fellow Moses, it's, it's kind of this implication of like, yeah, we don't really know who this guy is. Apparently he brought us out of the Red Sea. We don't know really what happened to him anymore. And you're like, guys, how do you not know who Moses is, right? And so there's this sense that he's kind of like some sort of stranger to them, okay? And so they're pressuring Aaron to make this decision about creating these other gods, okay? Now, we're, we're gonna walk through Exodus 32, okay? But this is the bookend. Aaron is fearful. He's fearing man in this moment, and he's going to make a decision. We get to the end of Exodus 32, and we're going to see the consequence of that fear. So everything in between is helping to establish the story, okay? So we're going to bookend it with this. Okay, so here we go, verse, verse, chapter, uh, verse 2 now. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they, and then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellow offer, fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. All right, so at this point, again, Aaron is the de facto leader because Moses has is, is, is been up in the mountain for about 40 days. Everybody's wondering what's going on. Aaron is second in command. They're approaching him, and they're like, Aaron, we want you to make a calf. And notice Aaron's response here. He says, absolutely not. There is no way that we will defile the Lord our God and give in to this temptation and give in to this sin. I call you back to repentance. Get on your knees and pray that the Lord will forgive you, right? That's what Aaron says, right? No, that's what Aaron should have said, right? But what does he do? Okay, everybody, give me your gold. Give me your gold. Well, you want a calf? I'll make you a calf. And notice something, this. Notice, right? He, he, he gets the calf, or he gets the gold. He makes it into a calf. He fashions it with a tool, okay? So this is not like he's just like getting some gold and he like pours a giant lump on the ground and he goes, all right, there's your God that you wanted, okay? And then he says, well, all the people, they go, this is your God, Okay, so there's a formal declaration now of this other God. And then he builds an altar to this, and they make sacrifices, and they eat and drink, and they have revelry. And just so you know, when we use the term revelry, that, that implies the idea of sexual debauchery is going on. Okay, so, so this kind of festive party is, is not a good one. Okay, now, I don't, I don't want us to be completely off base. I don't think there's a complete 180 turn from God. I think that the people here are still desiring to worship God, but they've got some issues with how they're worshiping God. And let me explain why. Because in verse 4, he says, recognize it's the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, so they're not turning to a completely different God altogether. They're acknowledging the, the Yahweh that has sent them through the Red Sea. 
Okay? And the second piece is they offer the, the burnt and fellowship offerings. Now, these are two types of offerings that will get clarified in Leviticus, which will eventually come through this law of Moses. And the burnt offering was very symbolic because when you offered this to God, it was completely burned up. And that was the idea that you are giving 100% complete devotion to God. And the fellowship offering was designed that when you, you offered this, it was the idea that you were kind of sharing a meal with God, that you were offering communion. And so you were having a chance to offer thanksgiving to God for all of the blessings that he's given to you. Okay, so there's this context that they still understand who Yahweh is. The problem is now they're mixing in all of these pagan rituals that they've been a part of down in Egypt. And so the, the pagan rituals are the fact that they make a calf. Okay? And this was very, very common, the idea of a bull or a calf, right, in these kind of Egyptian, Mesopotamian um, cultures. And the idea that they came out of Egypt, there was something called the Apis bull, okay, A-P-I-S. And the Apis bull was believed to be where the god Osiris, and the god Osiris was the god of fertility, agriculture, and the afterlife, he would physically come and dwell inside this bull. So what they're literally saying is, we want God to physically come and dwell inside this golden calf because we want a visible representation that we can worship God. Okay, And then... Because they did it, they thought it would bring strength, it would bring energy, it would bring prosperity to them. And so that's what they're looking for. And the reason why they built an altar is because you would place food before the altar. And if that food was received by the apis bull, then that was a sign that there would be blessings and good omens. And if that food was rejected, then there would be curses and a bad omen for your people. Okay? And this idea that, again, they're celebrating in the sexual debauchery was very common, again, of these ancient cultures. So it's not that they don't want to worship God. They do. They're very much religious. They're very much spiritual. The problem is, is they have a problematic theology. They don't understand God the right way that they should. And so because of that, their worship becomes selfish and it becomes sensual and it becomes unwilling to let go of the culture that God just redeemed them from. Okay, so now we've got this problem with the people in false worship. Okay, so now we're going to go on and say what God has to say about this. So in verse seven. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people who brought you up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and they've made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods of Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my, my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So God says, Moses, I don't know if you get what's going on here, but your people who are you're to be leading right now, my people have become corrupt. They've turned from me. They've gone into idolatry. They're seeking something else. And he uses this term 
stiff-necked. And this is a common, common phrase that you'll see in reference to God's people. And that idea was the idea of an animal that when a farmer was trying to guide it through the field and would want it to turn, it would refuse and it would fight against the farmer. And that's what he's sensing here is he's saying, look, your people are fighting against me. And so God says, as a result, I'm going to destroy them Moses, I'm going to eradicate this entire group of people because they have not worshipped me the way that they should. They're giving my glory to somebody else, some other thing that's not even a God but was fashioned by the hands of man. I'm going to eradicate them. And Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Okay, so God is not happy about what the people have done. And so Moses hears this and he goes, wait a minute, God. And he goes into overdrive and tries to help the situation here. Okay, so let's read the next part, verse 11. But Moses sought the face of the Lord as God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people who you, who you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you the descendants of the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And the Lord relented and did not bring his people the disaster that he had threatened. So Moses is like, whoa, 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 God, God, slow down. Hold on a moment here, God. I don't get it. You just saved these people and you proved how mighty and how strong you are. Why would you now turn around and destroy them, God? Furthermore, it's going to look really bad because all of these nations, these Egyptians, are going to be like, wait, God just saved them to kill them? That doesn't seem like a good God. And so he's pleading here for the character of God. And he's saying, God, don't do this. And he says, listen, you can't kill these people. Remember you made a promise to Abraham? And he said, through Abraham is going to come the Messiah? God, if you do that and you start with me, you're going to be a liar. You're going to break your promise. God, that's not who you are. And so God relents. And God says, all right, Moses, I won't do that. Now, in all honesty, I think this was more of a test for Moses than it was for God. Because again, I don't think God was going to break his own promise, right? Because God, we know in scriptures, God doesn't break his promise. But I do believe that God was angry. And that's righteous anger right there. And then God was at that point where he said, I am prepared to destroy these people. But he says, but I made a promise to them and I'm going to be faithful. And he says, all right, Moses, fine. He says, Moses, you've got to get down there. And so now we go to the next part here. Verse 15. Moses turned and went down to the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. And they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the work of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Did you catch that really quick? Joshua? Right there, there's going to be that transition of leadership here. And already we're getting the sense that Aaron's kind of out the door. And when Moses approached the camp and he saw the calf and the dancing and his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to the pieces at the foot of the mountain. 
And he took the calf that he had made and he burned it in the fire and then he ground it to the powder, powder, scattered it in the water and made the Israelites drink it. And he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you have led them into such great sin? Okay, so first God was angry and Moses is pleading with God to say, save your people. And then Moses gets down there and he's like, what is going on? Are you kidding me? And so the very tablets that God has etched with his hands, his laws, Moses takes and he shatters them in his anger. And he takes the calf and he grounds it up into this powder and he says, now you're going to drink it. You're going to drink the God that you wanted. Moses is not a happy camper at this point. And I, and I think it's really important that we see that sense that Moses shattered the tablets of the law. I mean, these are literally the law that God said, I'm giving you to show your people how to follow me. And even before he gets down the mountain, they've already broken the law, right? And God gets down there and he shatters the tam ta tablets and he shatters the law because it's a very violation of what they had just done. And what did they do? They broke the very first two commandments. You will have no other God before me and you will make no graven images. And I think that is very symbolic of what had just happened here. Because what Moses is saying here is he says, listen, you just desecrated the most important thing. Again, ordering in the Bible is always a key to understanding. Usually what goes first tends to be what is most important. And so the fact that he lays those two as the first two commandments, Moses said, you couldn't even get the first commandment right. And you desecrated the relationship that you had with God. And I think that's why Moses says to Aaron, all right, and he says to him there, he says, what did these people do to you that led you into such great sin? I think Moses is going to Aaron and saying, you don't realize what you've just done. You couldn't have done anything worse to these people. You couldn't have done anything more to harm these people by allowing them to have another God. You, you allowed them to break their relationship with the one true Yahweh. This is the worst thing you could have done, Aaron, while I was gone. And so now we finally get to hear from Aaron. Right? What is going through the mind of Aaron? Because remember, how did this start? Aaron, we're pressuring you. We want you to make us a God. And Aaron gives in because of the fear of man. And so here's how Aaron responds. Verse 22. He says, don't be angry with me, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. All right. So first off, right, he's pleading for mercy because he knows he's wrong. Right. What he should have been pleading for is forgiveness. Right. So he's got the wrong context here. Right. He should have started with confession and, and, and repentance and then have pleaded for mercy. But right out the gate, he's like, don't hurt me. Don't kill me. Right. And then he goes on. and He goes, God, 
Or, or Moses, look, you know how prone these people are to evil. It's not my fault. It's their fault. You, you should be dealing with them. They're such evil people. And then he tries to blame it on Moses because he goes, remember, this is what they said. They said, add for this fellow Moses. We don't know what happened. Moses, you were like up there and you were taken forever. I mean, really, this is kind of your fault if you're going to ask me anything. Doesn't that sound very similar to what happened in the garden? Remember that when Adam and Eve sinned and and Adam says in verse 3, Genesis 3, 12, he says, the woman you put me here with, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. God, remember you put her in the garden in the tree. This is really your fault, God. And so Aaron is trying to weasel his way out of here. And then he's like, hey, they just kind of gave me this gold and I like threw it in the fire and out popped this golden cap. I don't know how it happened. Well, didn't we already read in the first verse that what did he do? He fashioned it with a tool. There was intentionality that went on. It's kind of like how a whole bunch of atoms got together and the world popped up, right? So now we see the result of Aaron's sin. Because Moses is not having any of this. Verse 25. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. And then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. He comes down and he sees what happens in their disobedience. The people are running wild. They're doing whatever they want. And he says, you've just made us a laughing stock. You've made the God Almighty a laughing stock before his enemies. And God will not be mocked. And God will not be laughed at. And he says, you got one final chance here. And so Moses makes a call and he says, listen, this is your chance. You can come back to God or you can face the consequences. And so the Levites rally around, and those that didn't faced the sword, and they were killed for their disobedience and their idolatry. Walter Kaiser, who was writing a commentary on this passage that I came across, said, Without proper, visible leadership, people fail. And when we look at this circumstance, Aaron failed to do his job as a leader. He should have rejected any notion of sin, any notion to worship anything but the one true God. He should have been willing to face the hostility that was pressuring him and should have stood for God and God's righteousness. But Aaron's fear of man and his act of sin had deadly consequences. And you know what the sad part is? It wasn't even Aaron who had to face that consequence. 
again, we're living in a, in a culture right now where we are afraid of people. And people are demanding things of us and pressuring us and telling us how it is that we should live our lives. And when we stand there in fear, we acquiesce to their demands and to their desires. But we need to understand something. If we continue to do this, it's not going to get any better for us as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ. Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, here's, here's what happens. We're afraid of what man might do to us. And we give in and we hope that by giving in, somehow our problem will go away even though we know we should never have given in the first time. And then that fear turns into a trap and it enslaves us. And now we are at the mercy of the man that we fear. And we're praying, I hope it just goes away. I hope it just goes away. It's a trap. It doesn't go away. That's the whole point. We're trying to catch you. They're trying to enslave you. And now you are at their very mercy of whatever they want because you are unwilling to face what you need to face. And there is a pressure right now to do a lot of things. But there is no greater pressure that the world is constantly pushing on us to turn us away from our faith to go against the very word of God. And they want to silence who we are as Christians because we are the bigots, because we are the intolerant ones, because we are the evil ones that stand in the way of people's freedom and happiness. That is who we are. Here's where we should be concerned. Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. John Witherspoon, a Scottish minister in the 1700s, says this. The fear of God is the only thing that can deliver us from the fear of man. I don't want to blow over this and and say, guys, just go out and don't be afraid. We have emotions. I understand that. Fear is real. I get that there are real consequences when we take a stand for Christ. It may cause you to lose face. It may cause you to lose approval. It may cause you to lose your job. It may cause you to lose your house. It may cause you to lose your freedom. It may cause you to lose your life. I understand that. And I know it is not easy when you're sitting there and looking at the people you love standing behind you, knowing that if something happens to you, that something happens to them. And so it can become very easy To say, for the sake of the ones that I love, I'm just going to give in to the fear of man and hope my problem goes away. 
But if we fail to act biblically, if we fail to uphold the righteousness of God and his godliness and his holiness, guys, there are implications far worse than what's going to happen here. This is what we just read, because the implications are for the souls of humanity that is caught in the fiery furnace of hell. We have family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers that all one day will have to deal with the reality of eternity. And there is going to be an option about where that eternity is. And it is going to be heaven or it is going to be hell. This is why we need to be people of courage. Because there are eternal consequences when we fear man over fearing God. Let me give you a couple passages of scripture because I want to be very clear of the reality. Revelation 21.8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they are consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Matthew 25.46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And Matthew 13.49 and 50 says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the burning furnace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Guys, hell is not made in a Hollywood studio. The devil does not have a French mustache and a pointy tail and a pitchfork. Heaven and hell are real. And if, if we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we have the truth that says the consequences of our sin is death, but the beauty of Jesus Christ and the death on his cross is life, that is what we have to stand by as believers. Even when a world is trying to tell us otherwise, we have to stand firm to that truth and we cannot give in to the demands of the men and women of this culture. Because we've already read that those who trust in the Lord are safe. Psalm 56, 10 and 11. In God whose word I praise... In the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can man do to me? Adam, they can take your job. Yes, they can. Adam, they, 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 could, they could take your kids away from you. Yes, they could. Adam, they could throw you in prison. Yes, they could. Adam, they could put the, the, the sword to your, to your throat, they can put the gun to your head and they can take away your life. Yes, they can. But you know what they can't take away? My soul. Because you know what? That belongs to God. Because I am a child of Jesus Christ. And God says that will never, ever be taken away from you. So here's what I want us to understand. That if we are in Christ, our eternity is secure now and forever and always. And so if our eternity is secure, 
We need to stand our ground. And so let me, let me start here with this. To all the men in the room, to the husbands and to the fathers, it begins with you. It starts in your home. It starts with you being the gatekeeper of your house and keeping out the evil and allowing righteousness in in your home. And to the parents, it is your job to raise your children in the way of the Lord. And anybody that has kids, you don't have to look very far to know there's everything at their fingertips. The world is constantly out to get them, to change their minds, to convince them that you are not a good parent for teaching them about Jesus Christ. And to the elders and the staff of this church, it is your job to protect the righteousness and the holiness of this body. And to this church as a whole, it is our job to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to honor him with our lives and to fear him above fearing man. Let me just remind you of this last little part here. Moses interceded on behalf of his people. And he said, God, please, please, God, spare your people. And God did. And it's the very same thing that Christ did for us. When he went to that cross and he died and he shed his blood for us, he interceded on our behalf. And so this is a call back out of fear and back into faith because our eternity is secure. Let's pray. God, I desire not to make light of this. I desire not to just say, go out and, and not fear. Because again, I know the reality of this world, Lord. We are going to face pressures this very week. We will, we will leave this building, God, and something is going to challenge us. And so my pray, Father, is that in the moments of fear, that, Father, your spirit would enable us with courage to offer the grace and hope and love that is Jesus Christ. Father, the courage to say, whatever may happen to us is fine because there are bigger things in this world than what happens to me because there are eternal consequences. Father, may you be glorified in our lives. May we be willing to be people of boldness and courage that are willing to sacrifice everything for you the way that you have sacrificed for us. Again, it is easier said than done. And so, Lord, I am praying desperately for the power of your Holy Spirit to be the men and women, to be the church that you have called us to be. Amen.